Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Skin cancer is the most common cancer in the United States. Some are at higher risks of skin cancer than others, but anyone can get it. We review the different types and how they affect the body. Skin cancer tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Health information based on science, built on trust. Hello, I'm Dr. Jill Cruz, your Prairie Doc host this evening. Tonight's episode is part of our 21st season, providing health information based on science, built on trust. We continue to provide trusted health information this evening as we discuss skin cancer. Joining us to address this topic are Dr. Kendra Watson from Dakota Dermatology, and through Zoom is Dr. Jenny Nelson from Avera Medical Group Dermatology, Sioux Falls. Welcome and thank you both for joining us today, both here in the studio on the South Dakota State University campus in Brookings and through Zoom. So first I'd like to tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Dr. Watson, uh, want to introduce yourself sure. to the audience? Absolutely. Um, I'm from Sioux Falls originally. I now work at Dakota Dermatology um, in Sioux Falls. I've uh, been back now for about five years. It's been really lovely being back um, where I grew up and, and, and helping the, the patients where I'm from and the surrounding communities. Oh, wonderful. And how long have you been in practice here? Uh, about five and a half years. It'll be six. Yeah, coming right up. Wow, yeah. wonderful. <laughs> and first time on the show, which is, it is wonderful. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so it's like getting new guests. And yeah, it's lovely. Excellent. So, and Dr. Nelson, uh, tell us a little about, about your background and uh, specialty here. Yeah, I grew up in Freeman, uh, which is a small town near Sioux Falls, and um, have been at Avera Dermatology now for a little over 10 years. And um, I practice surgical dermatology here, so um, do a lot of work with cutting out skin cancers and fixing them. All right, excellent. Well, uh, before we start our conversation, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions about skin cancer. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org, or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible, given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover, and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. So lots to talk about in skin cancer here. Um, maybe we wanna start more with like, before we get to cancer, what are like precancers or things that people need to watch out for? Yeah, I think that's probably the a really a really good 
um, place to start and a good proactive place to provide education about, about what you can do to prevent having problems. Really it comes down to, you've heard it before, you'll hear it many times from, from us throughout the night is, you know, sun protection and um, being aware of what your skin has um, as far as spots, as far as moles. Um, 30 or higher for sunscreen, sun protective clothing, seeking shade, avoiding peak hours of the sun, all those things. And then just knowing what your body has and watching it with time and contacting your doctors with, with questions. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Nelson, are there people that are at higher risk for developing skin cancer? Are there, are there genetic uh, things that make you at high risk or uh, you know, certain heritages? Mostly your skin type has the most to do with it. So the more fair you are, um, the less protection you naturally have against the sun and the more likely you are to get skin cancer. So if you're fair and you're burning all the time, you're at high risk. All right, so basically me. <laughs> you're talking about me <laughs> and my redheaded son. Yes. Right, yep. <laughs> all right, so this is why I'm very obnoxious chasing him at the uh, swimming pool and at the beach with a bottle of sunscreen and he's running away as fast as possible. But um, I, I know there is a risk of getting a blistering sunburn in childhood that affects your risk for skin cancer as you get older. Um, do you guys? know how much that can affect or? I don't know the number offhand. I don't know if Dr. Nelson does, but yeah, that is one of the blistering sunburns in childhood, um, amongst other things that definitely does increase your risk. Gosh, I just don't know that number offhand. I, I remember there was an, it was pretty high. Yeah. yeah I remember it, it scared me enough to chase after my children with sunscreen. <laughs> yeah, I think that I always tell my patients that's one of the best things we can do for our kids mm -hmm. amongst all our other our duties as parents is just really make sure you're not getting, you know, damaging, damaging sun exposure. Yes. All right. Well, we're getting lots of calls coming in for from viewers here. So, in a caller from Sioux Falls is wondering, they have had a skin problem on her leg. It's really itchy and has been um, to three. It sounds like I'm assuming dermatologist. They said it was a chronic dermatitis. Is there anything that can be done about that, or is that a risk for skin cancer? Um, no, that this would be more under the medical dermatology kind of um, point of point of view. But um, chronic dermatitis is really hard. It's essentially a, a cycle of itch, scratch that leads to thickening of the skin, and and that in turn itches and scratches more. And so it's a really hard thing to be able to stop. Um, topical steroids and really good sensitive skin care with, with cream-based moisturizers are um, the gold standard treatment for that, as well as trying not to to touch it, which is very difficult. Okay, so don't scratch it despite I every know. urge in your exactly. body saying it just feels better, but then it makes it worse. All right, uh, viewer from Mobridge called in and said, as a child they had severe sunburns, wondering if a heating pad can cause damage to previously sunburnt skin. Um, Dr. Nelson, any idea if, if our heating, is it the thermal injury or is it the UV radiation that's causing the damage, I guess? Well, mostly the UV uh, damage is causing, you know, leading to skin cancer. But there are uh, people who use chronic heating pads on the lower back and they can develop a specific rash um, in that area or change in the skin. And that can actually lead to skin cancers in that area. So not very common um, for that to happen, but we can see it. Um, all right, so what are the uh, th 
is there three, basically three main types of skin cancer? Is that, uh, Dr. Watson, so what are those? Yeah, the three main types are um, probably the most common, basal cell carcinoma, um, probably second most common, squamous cell carcinoma, and then melanoma. Incidence of all of these is kind of on the rise, um, but those are the three that, you know, people who work in our field, you know, Dr. Nelson and I and, and our other colleagues in, in dermatology really see day in and day out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and, um, as far as um, dangers with them, everyone talks about malignant melanoma as being kind of the worst one. And can you explain to our viewers why everyone's scared of malignant melanoma? Why is that the big three out of the three cancers, the one you definitely would prefer not to get if you had a choice? Yeah, the, the, the main answer to that is melanoma, uh, if diagnosed at a later stage or a more aggressive melanoma, is, is the, the most common type of skin cancer to be able to metastasize to other organs, you know, travel throughout the lymph um, system and cause patient mortality, right? Like melanoma can kill you, which is why we always try to tell people, you know, stay out of the tanning booth, reduce your risk factors. Um, that one is um, to be taken seriously. Um, so that's why, you know, people kind of fear that diagnosis more than the other ones. Mm -hmm. And it's much more involved treatment as well. It, can, it can be. Um, much of it is just surgical, but it can certainly be, um, you know, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, um, new, new, great treatments in immunotherapy have really helped patients with more aggressive forms. But um, a lot of the early stages, you know, Dr. Nelson and I do, you know, just excisions on those in clinic, and patients can do very, very well as well. Wonderful. All right. Well, a caller from Sioux Falls has a malignant melanoma removed and was told that uh, he was not allowed to donate blood at a blood bank, and he is wondering why that is. Dr. Nelson, uh, is there any reason they won't be able to donate blood? Anytime anyone has a cancer other than like basal cell or squamous cell kind of have their own rules of the skin, but melanoma is lumped into there um, just in case there'd be cancer cells um, in that blood, uh, it's just a risk factor they try to avoid with blood donation. Okay, so if, if it's any cancer that can get into the bloodstream, we don't wanna risk spreading that to anyone else that you would donate the blood to. Okay, good Right, answer. and they have, they have time frames that they will tell you um, on their websites of how long you need to not donate for. All right, excellent. Uh, viewer from Tyler, Minnesota wonders if skin cancer has to start from a, an area that was previously sunburned or can it occur in other places as well? It can absolutely be in, in other places, which is kind of a humbling thing and, and it speaks to the multifactorial na nature of skin cancer formation. Um, the, a good example is the bottom of someone's foot. Um, you know, under underneath the undergarment area and the genitalia, we see that not super commonly, but but absolutely something that that we see in our field and are trained to to watch for and educate patients on. Okay, so it can really if you have skin, there can be skin cancer. There's no place that is immune. Correct. Okay. All right. Uh, caller is wondering if there have been any studies that correlate childhood warts to cancer in adulthood. Uh, Dr. Nelson. Any thoughts on that? Warts, you know, warts are caused by HPV virus, um, and so there are certain subtypes of HPV virus which can lead to cancers. Um, but generally, the the typical childhood warts that you have um, are not really linked to skin cancer okay. um, very closely. 
Got it. All right. Well, a caller from Huron is wondering when a person should have a mole checked up that recently showed, and what are signs that that mole could possibly be a skin cancer? So when do you say, oh, it's just a spot, or and when to say, God, I should really talk to my doctor or see a dermatologist? That's a, that's a good question and one that you know we talk about in clinic with our patients all the time. I think we as South Dakotans and, or you know Minnesotans, whatever, Midwesterns, try not to bother our doctors when we don't have to. We have this fear that we're, we're, we're bothering them. But, but the, the best answer I think for that is if there's something new that doesn't fit in with the rest of what you have on your skin, it's been changing recently and you're worried about it, is enough to pick up the phone and have it be seen. Um, it's a little bit of an overgeneralization, but that's, that's how we indeed find skin cancers. Mm -hmm. uh, many times we can reassure patients that it's a normal age-related growth, but, mm -hmm. but not always. Yeah, yeah. I, I always say if it's enough to make you concerned, yes. that is a good enough reason to get it checked out. Because you know, just looking at things with the naked eye can't always tell what's going on. I mean, Dr. Nelson, what tools do you use? Like, to, can you talk about like dermatoscopes or biopsies? Or, I mean, you can't tell just 100% by looking at something and say, yep, that's cancer. Yeah, we use this little tool called a dermatoscope. Um, it has a bright light and a magnifier on it, and there's some patterns we look at on moles to help us uh, determine. So a lot of times you're like, oh, I'll take a closer look at that, and you're like, oh, goodness, yeah, that does look bad. Um, other times patients come in and point out a mole, and they're just frankly concerned about it or they've noticed a change, and even sometimes it looks pretty normal, but you just think, gosh, I, you know, I get a funny feeling or the patient really isn't comfortable with this, so we take it off, and gosh, it's melanoma. Um, and so time, sometimes patients just have an intuition, their body is telling them something's wrong. Um, and so you listen to that and you take it off. Yeah, and that's what I always tell people, you know, the microscope, the pathologist is gonna tell us. Correct, there are a lot of, um, based on pattern recognition, you know, with our eyes, with our dermatoscope, and, um, you know, the new tools inside dermoscopy, that can be helpful, but the, the microscope has the final say. Yep, definitely, so. All right, well, a uh, viewer said that they are fair-skinned with reddish-brown hair, remember their first sunburn as a toddler. Would appreciate suggestions for sunscreen and how best to apply. They're a rancher, they're outside daily, often for hours. So how much sunscreen do you need, Dr. Nelson? It always seems like we're under-applied. Well, you know, if you're out, it depends how many clothes you have on. If you're in a swimsuit, they recommend an entire shot glass as one application, which is a lot. So in general, people just aren't applying enough to get the SPF that's on the bottle. Um, so if you're a rancher, you know, I would encourage them to wear long pants. A lot of them wear long pants and long sleeve shirts already. Um, wear a hat with a wide brim and then sunscreen anything you can't cover. So hopefully, you know, you could just be applying sunscreen to your hands and your face and your neck. Um, but it's hard, you gotta reapply it if you're sweating every two hours. Um, so just seeking shade, trying to stay out of the direct sun. Um, I really push a lot of photoprotective clothing. So stay covered up as much as you can and sunscreen what you can't. Uh, and I think I read somewhere like uh, the amount of sunscreen should be amount to fill a shot glass. Is that, yeah. is that a kind of good rule of thumb to kind of visualize how much you need to squeeze right. out? Yeah, I have a lot of patients. If you're in a swimsuit. If you're in yes. a swimsuit, okay. I have a lot of patients ask me, what's the best sunscreen? And there's really no one size fits all. As far as I'm concerned, one size fits all. 
answer to that. Um, certainly there are things we look for, 30 or higher is the magic number mm -hmm. uh, for what you wanna look for. Um, very rarely will I recommend higher than that because 30 does do the trick if you're using it appropriately. Um, but really zinc, zinc is a great ingredient, um, but it's a lot of trial and error, what feels right for your skin and what, what you don't mind putting on. So I, I think everyone's looking for the magic one and it's different for everybody. All right, so the best sunscreen is one you'll use. Correct. All right, well skin cancer is most common cancer in people to develop, but is also one of the most preventable cancers. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower spoke with a dermatologist about the American Academy of Dermatology's SPOT skin cancer campaign. Dr. Anisha Patel is a dermatologist from Houston and a member of the American Academy of Dermatology, or AAD. And she says skin cancer is a broad cancer with many ways it develops. You can get like basal cells and squamous cells, which come from your epidermis, the top layer of your skin. You can get melanoma, which comes from the pigment cells, which live in sort of the right at the border between the collagen and that top layer of skin. Um, and then there's a host of other more rare uh, skin cancers that come from the hair follicles, that come from sweat glands. Dr. Patel says there has been an increase in skin cancer, but for a peculiar reason. We have noticed an increased incidence in skin cancer. We can't tell if it's because we've just gotten better at finding them and finding them early, or if there's actually an increase in the amount of skin cancers that are out there. And this is a testament to dermatologists and patients being engaged in their skin health. The SPOT skin cancer campaign has been around for a while, but has gained traction in recent years in response to the rise of skin cancer. The SPOT Skin Cancer Awareness Campaign is really to educate people about the different types of skin cancer, how to perform a self-skin exam, how to prevent uh, sun exposures. The foundation for spotting skin cancer comes in the ABCDEs of testing. A, which is asymmetry. B is a border. Color. D is diameter. And then E is evolving. Dr. Patel says the testing and early detection are crucial to stopping skin cancer and its spread. It is a much easier thing to freeze a precancerous lesion or to simply cut out a, a low-grade skin cancer under local anesthesia than it is to be going to the operating room to be having radiation or chemotherapy. The American Academy of Dermatology's overall goal is to stop skin cancer and Dr. Patel says that goal is possible by... Being aware of the ways to prevent skin cancer in terms of avoiding the sunny parts of the day, wearing sunscreen, self-skin exams, coming in to see your dermatologist early for lesions, and then, um, and then having that early diagnosis and management. Could you guys go into a little bit more depth about the ABCDE, our little alphabet soup of testing here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's asymmetry, border irregularity, color variation, diameter, they say bigger than a pencil eraser. E is for evolving or changing, which is really the most important and kind of encompasses all of the other all right. uh, letters. All right, and our screen's showing oh, yeah. kind of good examples yep. of that. Yes, excellent, so super. 
Well, we have a question from a viewer. Is radiation a good option for basal cell carcinoma on the nose? They've already had it removed from the nose twice. Is that radiation another option and a safe option? Uh, Dr. Nelson, any thoughts on that? So typically, if we can cut out a basal cell carcinoma on the nose, you're gonna get the highest cure rate and probably the best cosmetic result too. In this particular clinical situation, uh, it just kind of depends how large the skin cancer is. Sometimes we'll get one that's you know been recurrent a couple times like this situation, and it's, it's so large that we're not gonna be able to reconstruct what we take out surgically. So that can be an option, but generally um, if it's small uh, and we're able to cut it out and reconstruct it, then you're gonna get the best cure rate and probably the best cosmetic result. Excellent, yeah, especially with things on the face, we're really talking about cosmetic results. We don't wanna be taking out big chunks of ears and nose and eyelids if we can help. Well, it. I think the irony is, is, is people are, of course, very concerned about cosmesis. We are too. Um, and so they wonder about radiation, but I think the vast majority of, of, of dermatologists who do surgery would, would really say that you're, you're gonna do, have your best long-term outcome with surgical um, treatment. Well, with suturing, you guys are our magicians, I, I just must say. I've, yeah. I've had to, the pleasure of taking out several stitches that were put in by dermatologists, and your sewing is by far superior to anyone's, so. There are, yeah, of course there are exceptions. Again, mm -hmm. the clinical situation will, is always kind of patient um, specific. Yes, definitely. So uh, a viewer is asking about photodynamic treatment. They recently had it done, should it be repeated? Uh, first, what is photodynamic treatment? When do you use it? And I don't use a lot of photodynamic treatment, but, but it is a, is, a, is a method of doing what we call field therapy. Um, so patients will often have what we call actinic keratoses or precancers on the face. Um, sometimes people will just have one or two and they're fairly well-defined. Other times, not uncommonly, we see patients who have, you know, 10 plus, they're confluent, they have, got, they have fertile soil for precancer all over, and then we'll reach for a field therapy like photodynamic therapy. Photodynamic therapy is a, a method where you put on a photosensitizer um, on your skin for a certain amount of time, either one or two hours, and then you sit in front of a light that has blue light wavelength for, I think it's 16 minutes and 50 seconds or something. I can't remember exactly what it is. Um, and it can help resolve a, a certain percentage of, of precancerous lesions. Excellent, wonderful. So um, what other treatments are there for uh, precancer lesions, Dr. Nelson? Um, you know, if there's just a couple of them, very commonly we'll just freeze them with liquid nitrogen. Uh, if we have a lot of them, uh, then we'll go to the field treatment. Uh, the main two field treatments that we use are photodynamic therapy or a topical chemotherapy called fluorouracil, which is a cream you put on versus the photodynamic therapy is a light, uh, which is a procedure that's done in our clinic. Yeah, it's something I always told my patients, I'm like, Think of it like dandelions in the yard. If you have one or two dandelions, you can take the time to pull them out. If your entire yard is covered with dandelions, it's best just to spray the whole yard and Absolutely. get them all. So, all right. Um, a caller from Sioux Falls says that they have some facial warts around the jaw. She's been told it's due to diabetes, but does not have a diagnosis. She's wondering how to treat the facial warts and can diabetes cause warts? 
You know, I wonder, the most common skin growth that can be kind of misinterpreted as a word is called a seborrheic keratosis. We see these, you know, you know, up between five and 200 in almost every patient. Um, they, they are somehow associated with um, kind of metabolic syndrome people who, not always, not always, but you know, there's some sort of growth factor that we have as humans that probably is is driving the the results of or the growth of these that you might see more of in people who are you know diabetic, pre-diabetic, overweight, have more frictional you know forces. Um, but I always kind of joke that no one's studying these. We're not like pumping in lots of money to study these. So we don't really know why a certain population might be more predisposed to others. We know they're very common human things. Um, and typically we just freeze them off with liquid nitrogen okay. if they're bothersome to the patients. Sounds good. Um, caller's wondering if malignant melanoma can be genetic. Is it something that runs in families? There's a genetic uh, trigger for it, Dr. Nelson? Yes, yeah, some of them definitely are, um, but melanoma is multifactorial, so definitely some families have melanoma that run in their families, and some melanomas are, do have genetic mutations that are passed along that family line, uh, but actually most aren't uh, genetic. Okay. Does that go for the other skin cancers too, squamous cell, basal cell, genetic components with those? You know, I think what makes those genetic is what Dr. Nelson alluded to earlier, which is skin type, right? You know, people have the same, you know, fair skin, um, light eyes, light hair, um, and usually that's, you know, passed along in your family. So I think in some ways that makes them genetic, but also they're just so common that you could never say that, that there is um, a genetic component really other than, than skin type. Um, that would be a hard thing to to study because of how common they are. Yeah. And what are the the four types of skin type? So I, I know I'm the always burn, never tan. Yeah. <laughs> and what's what's the uh, spectrum there? Yeah, we call them Fitzpatrick skin types. Gosh, it's been a while since I've talked about them. Most of the patients that we see are either one or two, mm -hmm. um, which really is more about how you respond to the sun than than what you look like. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes they go hand in hand. So most people in our communities are one or two. Um, three, four, five is 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 you know always tan, never burn, get dark very quickly. Typically have darker, more olivey or darker toned skin, and then four, five, and then I believe six. Um, is on the spectrum as well, but but sometimes some um, texts only say one through five, some say one through six. Six would be very dark, um, never never burns. Um, so yeah, it's about how you respond to the sun. And most people in our practices, because they're coming to see us, have problems with skin cancer and are ones and twos. All right. Well, a caller from Sioux Falls is wondering: Is UV light the only serious trigger for skin cancer, Dr. Nelson? Is that if, if we put on good sunscreen, are we good? Well, no, you know, if you're super fair and you're super good about the sun your whole life, you are still at high risk uh, for skin cancer. I would say ultraviolet radiation is probably the risk factor that we can change, right? We can't change our skin type. We can't change how dark our skin is. Um, we can't change if we're Irish, uh, but you can definitely modify how much direct sun you're getting, how many sunburns you get. I have some patients who are kind of frustrated. They're like, Doc, ever since I've been coming to see you, I've been wearing all my sunscreen, I've been doing my sun protective clothing, why am I still getting skin cancer? And you know, I think people look back and just like as a kid, you know, sometimes that cumulative past or past behavior can kind of indicate future damage, which is a little bit frustrating. That being said, we do know that making a change to 
improve your pr protection techniques, people do um, better. Um, but it can be frustrating if you're doing a really good job um, and doing everything you can and still have problems. But the baby oil in the 80s and, and the tanning beds before prom, that kind of catches up with exactly. you? All right. So um, kind of switching directions here. A caller from Sioux Falls is wondering about keloids. Is there a, a way to get rid of them? Um, Dr. Watt, or Nelson, can you tell us what is a keloid and can you get rid of them? A keloid is a scar that kind of overgrows its boundaries. So if you have a cut or a surgery and your scar forms a big, ropey, thick uh, scar line, that's a keloid. Um, and getting rid of them can be really tricky. Um, sometimes we just inject them uh, with a steroid. Sometimes we add a chemotherapy to that injection. Sometimes they're cut out and then radiated, uh, but they're hard. Um, and sometimes they're very persistent. Some skin types are more likely to cause keloids. Typically the darker your skin, the more likely you are to form keloids. All right, well, viewer has a very good question. Uh, they said, what should they expect during and after a skin biopsy? Yeah, I suppose um, during, um, you know, typically dermatologists will, you know, talk to, obviously talk to the patient about why that specific lesion might, might be suspicious enough to biopsy. Um, typically the dermatologist and the nurse kind of work together with getting a photograph of the area. Uh, numbing it with uh, local numbing medication like lidocaine. There's two different types of skin biopsies that are actually pretty different. One is called a punch biopsy and one is called a shave biopsy. Uh, shave biopsies are literally where we remove, you know, uh, kind of a little scoop um, of, the, of the skin off, where a punch biopsy is like a little mini cookie cutter where people put stitches in. Um, so that's a little bit more invasive but can be appropriate depending on, on what's going on um, and can also be a great way to obviously get a histologic diagnosis. Um, and then we put a, a bandage on and give you wound care instructions. Um, and then you go home and take care of it with soapy water and Vaseline and wait for your dermatologist to tell you what your result was, essentially. I don't know if that was exactly what he wanted me to answer or not. <laughs> I, I think that was that's a pretty good. good explanation of, yes. So aftercare instructions, uh, things that people can't do. I always said, you know, don't go swimming in the lake, don't go sitting in a hot tub, but you can bathe after 24 hours, you know. Everyone does a little bit differently. That I think that's what most people say to their patients. Soapy water in the shower is encouraged. All right, excellent. So uh, viewer said they had a basal cell carcinoma removed. What type of follow-up will they need after that? Dr. Nelson, how long do you follow after basal cells removed? You know, typically we'd see the patient back. It depends if they've had a full body skin check. If you have a biopsy and then you have your basal cell treated, you want to have somebody do a full body skin check because so often we have one somewhere and then we do a full body and we find one or more others to treat. So I'd say the first step would be having a full body if you haven't had that done. And then we usually see people back uh, based on how risked risky we think it is that they have another one um, either six months later typically we'll follow people once a year um, for at least a while um, i don't think a basal cell necessarily buys you a skin exam for life like a melanoma does but for certain many years um, the risk of having a second basal cell after your first basal cell is up to 50% over the first two to five years after your first one. 
Um, so high likelihood that you're gonna make a second basal cell, unfortunately. Okay, so those yearly skin checks are very important to not blow off, because just because it's gone doesn't mean you can't have it another. Absolutely. Okay, excellent. Well, as winter settles in and the opportunity to be outside in the sunshine dwindles, many are tempted by tanning beds to keep up that summer glow. That can be a dangerous decision, however. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer learned more about the risks that tanning bed users face. Dr. Mandy Greenway is a certified dermatologist working with Avera in Mitchell, and she warns of tanning beds. Tanning bed lights are a little bit more dangerous because they go deeper in the skin, which leads to more, more risk of skin cancer and um, more risk of signs of aging from the sun. And their dangers. Tanning beds actually can emit about 10 to 15 times the amount of UVA light as the sun does during the midday sun, so significantly stronger. Dr. Greenway says the sun emits three UV lights, A, B, and C. The atmosphere filters out UVC, leaving UVA, the light that damages your skin, and UVB, the light that sunburns your skin, to shine through. Tanning beds only emit UVA light. Incorrectly, people think that if they don't get a burn, then it's not dangerous. The burn is just the sun's way of telling us, hey, we're getting too much sun. And so the tanning beds kind of bypass that safety system. They bypass that safety valve. And so they don't tend to cause burns as much. Um, and because of that, people think they're a lot safer when in fact, they're a lot more dangerous. And because they aren't burning, they stay in tanning beds longer, absorbing too much UVA light, which can cause skin cancer. Dr. Greenway also mentions that the younger you start tanning beds, the more likely skin cancers will develop. And she says South Dakota is one of six states with no tanning bed regulations for minors. So that means my you know, 10-year-old daughter could go in and, and feasibly tan. It's up to the salons. So that's an area that um, I have personal interest in and trying to change because again, we are definitely an outlier in that regards. Most states in this country have regulations that you either need parental consent or it's just not allowed unless you're over the age of 18. When asking about vitamin D in tanning beds, Dr. Greenway says UVB light produces vitamin D, meaning tanning beds barely emit any vitamin D since they only produce UVA light. You also only need very little sunlight to convert vitamin D. So it only takes about 15 minutes of sunlight, outside sunlight, for our body to convert all the vitamin D we're going to. Beyond that, we're just accumulating more damage. However, Dr. Greenway says there are better ways to get vitamin D. I always tell people there are surfers in Hawaii who don't have enough vitamin D. It's, it's, it's easier and better to get your vitamin D from foods and from a supplement than to try to do it from sunlight. And certainly from trying to go in a tanning bed, it's not going to convert it. And it's obviously dangerous. Well, I think that kind of clears up any misconceptions about tanning beds, but what about tanning lotions or spray tans? Are either of those harmful if you want to keep, you know, kind of that, that glow throughout the winter months? 
I would basically say much um, preferred to tanning bed use. You know, if you're really sensitive, those sprays or those, you know, self-tanner lotions can be kind of irritating to the skin. But for the most part, I don't really have a problem with them. Aside from sometimes making people look orange. Yes, they can do that. And they can also kind of accumulate in, mm -hmm. in some of the benign growths that we make on our skin. Um, but they, they do a pretty good job of making them. I would just say to embrace your, your, your natural skin tone more than anything, but to each their own, and I'm fine with sprays. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good, but avoid the beds. Yes. Please. All right. So a caller from Brookings is wondering what can be done to help make scars less visible or disappear following heart surgery. So I'm assuming they're meaning that midline stromotomy, that big scar that goes from you know breastbone down to yeah. you know kind of upper stomach. Uh, again, that's a common place to get a keloid. It is, and those scars are impressive. You know, when we do full body skin checks, you know, every day we see a lot of those, <laughs> and and they're usually. Um, they, they can be um, keloidal in nature or big hypertrophic because of the location. You know, the, there's not wonderful research about scars. Some people will ask about vitamin E oil or um, you know, various essential oils. Um, probably the best data we have is about silicone sheeting. Um, they're a little bit hard to find and tricky to use, especially if you have chest hair. I most of the time just say time and to, to listen to your doctor's activity restrictions after whatever surgery you're going through, because that will help keep the scar um, in a more neutral, non-tense form. Wonderful. All right, well, um, what type of doctors would someone see when they're being treated for skin cancer um, or melanoma in particular? So. Um, Dr. Nelson, melanoma, are you going to be seeing just you or are you going to be seeing an oncologist? Who else do your patients see? It really depends on how, what stage your melanoma is in. So many, many uh, melanomas are either stage zero or stage 1A and most of the time we'll treat those in our clinic with surgery um, and then we'll see them often uh, for skin checks for many, many years to a lifetime afterwards. If your melanoma is deeper, um, then your treatment's gonna involve a lot more uh, different specialists. So we may send you to oncology, we may send you to surgeons to do a sentinel lymph node biopsy. Um, you may have imaging like PET scans or brain MRIs. So it really, uh, the main thing is how deep the melanoma is in your skin. So the Breslow depth when you get that initial biopsy really determines how intensive your treatment is. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And the other two, the, the basal cells, squamous cell, um, do they need to see specialists at all? Or is that pretty much once you've cut them out, that's taken care of since they're more superficial? The great majority of basal cells and squamous cells can be cut out uh, in our offices and um, we just follow you after that. Some, I would say most likely squamous cells, um, if they're a higher stage, larger, more aggressive, something we call poorly differentiated, sometimes we'll send them to radiation oncology after surgery to get some post-operative radiation. Um, rarely we'll do a sentinel lymph node biopsy if it's a higher risk lesion. Um, or maybe some imaging. So those are the higher risk kind of exceptions to the rules, squamous cells, um, but we certainly do do that. All right, so a caller is wondering if the docs could explain most surgery. I know Dr. Watson, you do a fair amount of that. Yeah, I think Dr. Nelson probably does quite a bit more and, and I'll maybe let her take the lead Okay, sounds good. Yeah, I do most surgery a lot. Um, 
And so most surgery is a surgery we use mainly for basal cell and squamous cell, but some melanomas we do it on as well. Um, it's a technique that was developed about 50 years ago. Um, and what makes it special is really the way we process the tissue. Uh, it allows us to see 100% of the margin uh, before we reconstruct. So uh, because we're looking at 100% of the margin, we can start with smaller margins. So we can cut smaller holes and give you a higher cure rate, uh, typically all in the same day. So what it really involves is you come in, it's an outpatient visit. Uh, we look at your skin cancer, uh, mark it, anesthetize it just with local anesthesia. You're awake for the whole procedure. Um, we take a small margin around that skin cancer and then we uh, take a pause and we bandage you. And that tissue goes right um, just down the hallway to the lab and they'll frozen section it. Uh, and they'll do that in a special way that's different than a standard excision um, that allows us to look at all the margins. And so that can take anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour. It just really depends uh, how easy that tissue cuts and um, how large it is. Um, and if we're positive, we have it marked out so that we can just go back and take more skin cancer and get a clear margin where you're positive. So after maybe one stage or two stages, we'll have a clear margin and then we can look at it and fix it. And that's the reconstructive part. Okay, wonderful. So get it all taken care of at once rather than having to wait for the pathology. Oh, we didn't get it all. Come back, make another appointment, and you just make sure you've got it all yeah. before they leave. I think some patients right. are sometimes frustrated that they have to wait, and then they have to wait again, and then they have to wait again, and all of a sudden they've been there for four hours, but it still is a very effective way instead of having that four-hour process be dragged on throughout months, times. Yes, so uh, viewers wondering what side effects from surgery of removal of skin cancer should they expect? So they've had the most surgery. Now, is there anything they need to worry about afterwards from the procedure itself? You know, on, um, all in all, most surgery as well as other skin cancer surgery is fairly low risk. Um, there's always a risk of, of infection, but rates of that are, are really pretty low. 1% um, or less in certain areas. Um, on the face, less than 1%, maybe a little bit higher on the legs or, or lower down. Um, that's always possible, but low risk. Uh, bleeding problems, people can have um, normal bleeding, or if they're on multiple blood thinners, they can have higher risk of, of bleeding you know, during the procedure, which most of the time we can control with, with technique and, and devices like cautery. Um, and very rarely people will have bleeding problems after they leave the clinic. Those are probably the biggest two. You know, pain, people are always in a little bit of discomfort. Scar formation is, you know, 100% risk of that. Oftentimes these do fade into the surrounding skin quite nicely, especially on the face. Um, but those are probably the main risks that I go over through, you know, time. we all go over through time and time again with our patients. All right, well, a caller says that they were diagnosed with skin cancer and cannot get in to see a doctor for five weeks. Wondering what should she do? Is, is five weeks going to um, be a concern? That, that really depends on the type of, of skin cancer. Hopefully she has a, whoever biopsied that mm -hmm. for her. Um, whether it's a you know family doctor, internal medicine doctor, or um, or other, will will be an advocate for her and and know to some degree you know where to uh, refer her uh, for what amount of treatment. Melanomas we feel very strongly need to get treated within 30 days. The literature has proven that people just do a little bit better. 
basal cells, especially basal cells that are quite slow growing, it probably isn't a big deal to wait five weeks. So it really just does depend and hopefully whoever does the biopsy um, knows a little bit about that and if they don't, um, I think that they could always send that pathology report, send the glass slide to a dermatologist who would look at the, that patient patient case and advise appropriately. Yeah, and that, that's the wonderful partnership between primary Absolutely. care and specialists to say, hey, this is what I, I have, I'm concerned, this is what your secretary, sometimes the front desk and the doctors have a different idea of what is urgent. Yeah, I would say how it works at, at our clinic is, you know, if they have a skin cancer diagnosis that comes in, usually one of the docs is pretty quickly involved and then we'll request the slides from there and then say, yep, yeah, you know, I think four weeks is, is not unreasonable mm -hmm. or, you know, gosh, this is melanoma, we need to do this, you know, sure. quicker. And then um, and then usually we can get people in in a way that is um, is appropriate for it for the diagnosis that they have. You'll make it happen if it needs to yeah. happen. Yeah. So, all right. Well, we've got a few questions left and a few minutes, so we'll try to hit these as quick as possible. So, Dr. Nelson, can you explain what cryosurgery is? Cryosurgery is just when we use liquid nitrogen to treat things. Um, so it's just kind of an alternative name. Yep, so it, it sounds more it impressive does. than it, it is. It sounds fancy. <laughs> yes, it's basically liquid nitrogen. Yep. Yes. All right, my favorite part is dumping the cup out at the end. Absolutely, and, and it never it gets old. It never does. <laughs> All right, so a caller has precancer spots removed and is taking carbidopa for Parkinson's. They're wondering if that carbidopa could be causing an increased risk for precancer spots. Is, have you heard any correlation between that? I'm, I, as a family doctor, I'm not familiar with the correlation. I have not. I think, I think the most recent the literature that I, yeah, you go, go ahead. Yeah, carbidopa, it does put you at a slightly higher risk for melanoma, melanoma as okay. does yeah. Parkinson's in general. Exactly. Um, yeah. So there is a small correlation there, uh, but not really pre-cancer. So it really depends what kind of skin cancer you're talking about. But I wouldn't, I'm, I'm not aware that it causes increased pre-cancers. Mm -hmm. All right. A caller from Sioux Falls is wondering if a sarcoma is a type of skin cancer. And if so, why is it not talked about? I would say that sarcoma is um, a really broad term for a type of cancer that can form from a variety of different tissues and is not skin specific. Kind of a, that would be a really good question for an oncologist. It would. Um, but, but sarcomas you'll hear about coming from like muscle tissue or um, various deep parts of connective tissue, kind of in a, in a, in a, anatomical plane that isn't owned very well by anyone. So, you know, dermatologist's zone is a little bit above that, while below that is orthopedics and like who owns this inner, and then there's various other part, um, types of sarcoma. So it's a little bit um, just too vague to say for sure, but I would say as a dermatologist, we don't deal very frequently with sarcomas. All right, well, one minute left. Uh, Dr. Nelson, can skin cancer start out on covered spots of the body after being out in the sun a lot? Yes, so unfortunately, you know, when people come in for surgery, they always say, well, why am I getting it here? You know, I hardly ever saw the sun there. Well, if that were the case, all our skin cancers would be on the tip of the nose or the tip of the ears. Uh, but unfortunately, it's just not how it works. Um, you know, you have ultraviolet radiation, and that causes skin cancer really anywhere. So unfortunately, it just, it just it's 
skin cancer or sun is the main risk factor, but we don't always develop the skin cancer where the sun hits the most. Yeah, because those UVA rays can penetrate deeper through clothing, correct? Is that? They can. They can. So. And they're not just out during the, I mean, it's cloud, they can go through clouds. They, I mean, those yeah. UVA, that's, that's where we really get our problem with those UVA rays, which you're not feeling the sunburn like exactly. you do with the UVB. So again, looking for that sunscreen that's UVA and UVB, so. All right. Well, the winner of our prize tonight is Jeannie from Pier. Thank you, Jeannie, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. In healthcare, misinformation can be as deadly as the most serious disease and spread just as quickly. For 21 seasons, the Prairie Doc organization has provided health information based on honest science in a respectful and compassionate manner. Medical professionals from your own communities volunteer each week to answer your questions. There is no cost to call in or to watch our shows. Follow The Prairie Doc on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to access the entire Prairie Doc library today. When people talk about skin cancer, the type that most people think about is melanoma. This skin cancer follows the A, B, C, D, E rules for diagnosis. A, a symmetry. B, a regular border. C, more than one color. D, diameter more than six millimeters, and E, expanding in size. However, these rules will not help to find the most common type of skin cancer called a basal cell carcinoma. Unlike melanomas, basal cell carcinomas are often symmetric with regular borders in the early stages. They are usually one color, being about the same as the surrounding skin, but with a pearlescent sheen although they can be reddish or bluish in color. On darker skin cones, they may appear lighter or darker than the overall skin tone. They often start off as bumps with a rolled border or can have a warty-like appearance. They are also fairly slow growing and can be smaller than six millimeters when forming. As you can see, the ABCDE rules are not helpful for diagnosing this type of cancer. Basal cell carcinomas account for nearly 80% of all skin cancers and is the most common type of cancer in the world. However, they are rarely fatal, tend to grow slow, and do not tend to spread to other areas of the body. Although, if left untreated, may grow deep and spread out from where they started. They are commonly found on sun-exposed areas of the skin, such as the neck, arms, and face, especially on the nose and ears. Basal cell carcinomas are most common in elderly males, especially in fair-skinned people with blonde or red hair. One example is farmers who typically spend many hours out in the fields working in the sun. They often wear baseball caps, which protect their foreheads and scalps, but leave their neck, arms, nose, and ears exposed to the sun, where they are more likely to have a basal cell carcinoma occur. Another example would be truck drivers. They would most likely have a basal cell carcinoma on the left arm and left side of their face versus the right, due to that being the side most frequently exposed to the sun. As a basal cell progresses, they can develop a central depression that often scabs and bleeds. 
oftentimes there are thin red lines visible on the edges of a basal cell carcinoma. Those thin red lines are small blood vessels that can bleed when bumped or scratched. When someone comes to the doctor and describes having a sore that does not seem to heal, a basal cell carcinoma is often on the list of possible causes to rule out. Do not just follow the ABCDEs for skin cancer detection. No matter what the spot on your skin looks like, if you're concerned, tell your doctor to take a look. It could be one of the other types of skin cancer. Your skin will thank you. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Watson and Dr. Nelson, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about skin cancer. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper or online. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of Health Information Based on Science, Built on Trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Emergency medical services respond daily to calls for help. EMS performs an essential role in a coordinated system of care. EMS, access and assistance. Next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. The vitality of a rural community is closely tied to the health of its population. Hello, I'm Dr. Tom Dean. I grew up on a farm west of Wessington Springs, South Dakota. After completing medical training nearly 50 years ago, my wife Kathy and I came back to Wessington Springs to provide health care and to raise our family. All my life, I've been an advocate for rural communities. Rural residents often encounter barriers that limit their ability to obtain the care they need. In order for rural residents to have the best health care outcomes, appropriate health care services must be available in a timely manner. The foundation of good health care is good health information. Prairie Doc programming provides rural communities with truthful health care information based on solid science. All Prairie Doc Media is free and accessible through social media and South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I am honored to be a volunteer board member of the Prairie Doc organization. I know the value of providing objective, evidence-based healthcare education, free of charge to anyone, especially to people who have limited access to healthcare professionals. Please help us to continue the legacy of Dr. Rick Holm of providing information based on science and built on trust. I urge you to go to prairiedoc.org and make a donation today, as Kathy and I have done. If you don't feel comfortable donating online, please send our staff an email and they will send you a pledge card through the mail. Thank you for believing in and supporting our mission. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by 
At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications. <laughs>